0: Welcome to the New Books and Philosophy channel of the New Books Network. My name is Robert Talese. I am professor of philosophy at Vanderbilt University. I co host the channel with Carrie Figder. Carrie is associate professor of philosophy at the University of Iowa. Today, my guest is Adrienne Martin. We'll be talking about her new book, How We Hope A Moral Psychology, which is newly published by Princeton University Press. Adrian is associate professor of philosophy at the University of Pennsylvania. From political campaigns to sports stadiums and hospital rooms, the concept of hope is pervasive. And the story we tend to tell ourselves about hope is that it is intrinsically a good thing. In many ways, we still tend to think of hope as a kind of virtue. Hence, we talk about hopes being dashed, or crushed, and we speak as if losing hope is an unmitigated bad. We also talk about false hope, which is a kind of misfortune rather than a blemish on hope's moral ledger. But perhaps surprisingly, there's been little sustained philosophical attention paid to hope as a moral phenomenon. In her book, How We Hope, Adrian Martin presents a distinctive and compelling philosophical analysis of hope. Hoping, she argues, involves the taking of one's attraction for an outcome that one judges unlikely to eventuate to supply reasons for acting in various ways. Her incorporation view of hope enables Martin to establish fascinating philosophical connections between hope, imagination, practical reasoning, and even secular faith. This is a little book that advances a lot of big ideas— so let's turn to the interview. Hello, Adrian Martin. Hi, Bob. How are you doing today?
1: I'm great. Thanks. How are you doing?
0: Oh, I'm doing fine. Uh, thank you so much for joining us on New Books in Philosophy.
1: Well, thank you for having me. I'm really ex- pleased to be here.
0: Well, great. Uh, and thank you, listeners, for tuning in to our discussion of Adrian's new book, How We Hope: A Moral Psychology, which uh, I recommend very highly. Uh, this book begins with uh, a very hands-on, practical issue. Uh, and then very quickly uh, and expertly travels into fascinating topics in the psychology of certain moral phenomena, especially hope and some related uh, states. Um, it's a highly accessible book and uh, really intriguing in all kinds of respects. But before we explore um, the topics here, uh, and there are many, um, Adrian, uh, please tell us a little bit about yourself in this project.
1: Sure, yeah. So um... – uh, well, I'm a moral philosopher. I'm at the University of Pennsylvania. I've been there for, uh, I guess I'm in my eighth year now. And um, I went to, uh, I did my PhD at UNC Chapel Hill, where I worked um, with both uh, Tom Hill and, and Jeff Sarah McCord in a sort of deliberate effort to uh, avoid becoming a clone of each. And I, I like them both and their work an, a great deal. And working with both of them was a really, really wonderful experience. Um, hmm. Uh, and so then after I went to, after I finished my PhD in 2004, I, I started a postdoc um, at the NIH in the Department of Clinical Bioethics, um, and that's where the book first, where I first started thinking about the issues that eventually grew into the book, yeah.
0: Well, excellent. So can, can, I, can I pick up there yeah. and, and and just add, because, you know, one of the the really intriguing um elements of the book is, is where you begin. Um, and you begin with these series of experiences, uh, while working as a bioethicist at the national institutes of health, uh, particularly with, um, uh, people, uh, in trials, uh, for, for cancer. Um, can you tell us a little bit about those experiences, uh, and what prompted you particularly to to start thinking philosophically uh, about hope?
1: Yeah. So, um, So the Department of Clinical Bioethics at the NIH is both institutionally and physically inside of um, the clinical center, which is the research hospital where all the intramural research uh, at NIH is done. So it's a hospital where everyone is a research participant. Um, And part of the postdoc there uh, involves, um, well, there are a few elements. Uh, One is um, following uh, some researcher around, and you can sort of Pick, a research, uh, pick, pick an area of research that you think is going to be most useful for you or inspiring for you. Um, I uh, ended up at the um, National Cancer Institute for the first year, and then I, I followed the pal- palliative care team around the second year. Mm-hmm. Um, and um, so the, uh, this is a setting where people talk about hope all the time almost always in very positive terms. The uh, the building itself, they had opened a new building shortly before I got there. And they had at the opening ceremony, um, a longtime research participant had call, said something along the lines of here at the House of Hope. And all of the emails that came from the administration to everyone working there for months after that started by saying here at the House of Hope. Uh, <laughs> and if you uh, I mean, all you have to do is if, if you if you Google cancer and hope, you'll get ten gazillion hits of, um, institutions involved in cancer research and treatment that invoke the concept of hope. So it's, it's really the watchword in that setting. Um, and I, I mean, I think that's true in medical research more broadly, not just cancer, but cancer kind of, uh, crystallizes almost everything I think about the, the ways that we feel about, uh, medical research and medical treatment, um, because it's such a scary, scary disease. Um, and uh, so, so there was all of this hope in the air. Uh, the, at the same time, the researchers that I followed around and some articles I read would sometimes express concern about giving research participants false hope. And you hear doctors talk about this too, um, in relation to their patients being concerned about giving them false hope. And so I started wondering, well what you know what is this thing that everybody thinks is so, so important, but they're worried that in some sense it could be a lie. Um, and so I started poking around being a philosopher. I immediately went went to my home territory and started looking to see what philosophers had said about it and found that, in fact, they hadn't said much um, and that what they had said I didn't find very satisfying. So I started thinking about it initially in that context. And once I started thinking about it in that context, it pretty rapidly uh, blew up. And I started, there was a uh, presidential political campaign going on at the time. There was a lot of talk about hope there, and some people thought hope was this wonderful thing to be offering people, and some people thought it was misleading um, or somehow naive. Um, I was bidding on a house at the time. It was that was the, uh, a housing bubble at the time, and I was bidding on a house, and was you know my days were just fraught with hope and fear about whether I'd win the bid and what would happen if if I did, and so I was just found myself thinking about it in every venue. (laughs) Um, and so I, I started trying to work out what it is, but I was particularly motivated to figure out what it is in order to understand how it influences deliberation and motivation, because that seemed to be the concern in the medical setting was that it could somehow lead people to make bad decisions. Um, and, but that simultaneously it was somehow needed to keep people from from sinking into despair and becoming paralyzed, so I was interested in figuring out what this thing is that it, we have these intuitions about it. That on the one hand, it can lead you to make really bad decisions if it's you know if it takes a certain form, but then on the other hand, it can be this really really important uh, form of motivation. On the other, so
0: right. Well, um, so let me ask one more sort of um, background kind of question, yeah, um, which is sort of about the the the, the way you conceive the of the, the the relation between uh you know the, the subtitle of the book amoral psychology mm-hmm. uh, between sort of the philosophical attending to certain kinds of psychological states that have moral bearing and moral theory more generally is um uh how do you understand the relation and does does this sort of um uh practice-based uh approach uh, uh that you take in the book um, reflect broader commitments in moral theory that you've got.
1: Okay, great. Um, well, so on the first question about moral psychology and its relation with moral theory, um, I mean, I, I flail about trying to figure out what what moral psychology is. I mean, most broadly speaking, it's investigation into those elements of our psychology that are important to us to our moral lives, to our lives as moral agents. Um, And I take it this is something that, you know, encompasses different methodologies. For example, you can have empirical psychological work investigating moral emotions um, or you can do more my side of a priori investigation, thinking carefully about the concepts and the relations between uh, the concepts of different kinds of um, psychological states. Um, so I actually do very, very little, maybe no moral theory in the book in terms of say articulating and defending a moral principle or anything like that. Um, it's so it, it's a moral psychology because it's an investigation of, um, a, a set of elements in our psychologies that I take to be very important to our lives as, Moral agents, and I and I mean moral agents in in the broadest sense, right? Not just agents who think in terms of ought, but agents who approach the world, um, who process experience through evaluative concepts. Mm -hmm. Um, So, uh, yeah, and and then as far as sort of whether there's any particular relation between moral psychology and moral theory, I mean, I think um, in in some sense moral psychology is is the prior project. Elizabeth Anscombe famously at the end of her paper, Modern Moral Psychology said, we we can't do moral philosophy until we do good psychology. Um, That's maybe a bit stronger than I would want to put. (laughs) Uh, But I do think that uh, moral theory can be very much enriched by having a a detailed understanding of um, the various uh, motivational states that, we might be able to deploy the various um, evaluatively tinged perspectives that we might bring to bear on the world, the various um, concepts and emotions that are at play when we um, respond to morally fraught situations.
0: Right. Um, Well, great. Um, Can we get then to uh, talking about the heart of the, the the arguments in the book? Um, So, um, you know the, the the first uh chapter and 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 subsequent discussions uh within the book uh are focused on rejecting uh a common definition or analysis of hope uh what you sometimes call the the orthodox definition um and you reject this account of hope uh, on the grounds that um uh the orthodox view can't uh, adequately capture um, a range of, you know, what we might think of as sort of hoping phenomena. <laughs> uh, but you're especially interested in um, this this phenomenon of hoping against hope. Um, so can you tell us a little bit about the, the, the importance of the hoping against hope phenomenon and then uh, tell us why you think the standard uh, analyses of hope uh, don't adequately capture it?
1: Yeah. So the what I call the orthodox definition um, of hope is sees, understands hope to hope for an outcome as being uh, desiring the outcome and assigning a probability somewhere between zero and one to that outcome, um, and there's you'll you'll find various articulations of this definition of hope. Um, starting in the early modern period, Hobbes says something like this, um, and, and tracing up until the early 20th century. Um, most, uh, there aren't a lot, but there, there are a few contemporary philosophers who've written about hope and most of them have rejected the orthodox definition for one reason or another. Um, so, uh, you know, sometimes I think mostly we're inclined to reject it because it's really boring. Um, and, (laughs) and we think hope isn't boring. Um, but, uh, but yeah, so I do actually have an argument for rejecting it, uh, and it appeals to this, um, this phenomenon of what I call hoping against hope. And so hoping wh- – when a person hopes against hope, what I mean by that is that they are hoping for an outcome that they see as extremely improbable but that they attach great importance to. Um, so the kind of example that I draw from my experience at NIH is uh, the research participant in some kind of phase one – Trial. These are trials that test just for toxicity. They're not even testing for any kind of medical benefit. The standard phase one trial um, offers uh, a less than one percent chance of any medical benefit accruing to participants, Um, and. if, for example, you find people with advanced cancer who have exhausted all the available treatment options will enroll in these trials. Um, and if you ask them why they're doing it, they'll they'll give you a num- number of reasons, some of them altruistic, hoping to contribute to um, a cure down the road. But there's always also the hope of um, this turning out to be a miracle cure. Right. And I think he's right about that. And I think that this is especially salient in cases of hoping against hope. So you might take two research participants, one who Has a really strong hope for some medical benefit or for this to be a miracle cure, and another who doesn't, but who essentially is in despair about this possibility. Um, And yet, the Orthodox definition could be true of both of them. They both believe the chance, they assign the same probability to this hoped for outcome or to this desired outcome. They both really, really desire it, um, but yet one hopes and one despairs. Um, And the Orthodox definition isn't telling us what's the difference between these two cases.
0: Right, and you characterize this as the 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 difference between the emphasis and the sentence you know it's vanishingly small, but it's possible <laughs> right, where you say one person says it's vanishingly small, but it's possible right, and the other person says it's possible, but it's vanishingly small exactly. right
1: exactly
0: right um so uh so the the claim then is that the orthodox definition can't capture this um you know what. you know, the phenomenon we might say of this hope. Um, Well, great. Um, So, but against that Orthodox view, um, you uh, then propose uh, an alternate view, which you call the incorporation analysis, which you think can do better on um, capturing uh, the special kind of hoping phenomenon. Yeah. Um, Can you tell us a little bit about that?
1: Sure. Yeah. So, so, the precise formulation of what I call the incorporation conception is um, is pretty long <laughs> and pretty technical um, so i'll just i 'm going to just try to point toward the central idea of it I think um, so uh, so the idea is that what the orthodox analysis leaves out um, is first largely a matter um, of the hopeful person 's attitude towards the probability that she assigns the hoped for outcome. So, say, one research participant looks at the 1% and says, that's enough for me to go on with, while the person who's despairing doesn't think it is. Mm-hmm. Um, so we could, you could call this um, a way of gestalting the probability, say. Right. Um, so similarly, I think that the, uh, that the hopeful person is one who also who she gestalts her own desire for the outcome and the features of the outcome that make it desirable to her uh, as reasons to go on. Uh, so part of the difference between the hopeful research participant and the despairing one is that the first sees her own desire for the miracle cure as a reason to go on, while the despairing one uh, who who desires a miracle cure just as badly thinks it doesn't give him any reason to go on. So, um, so I, I call this incorporation because I think that what the hopeful person does is uh, take up her attitudes toward the hoped-for outcome and treat them as reasons to go on in a certain way. Um, so she's incorporating her own attitudes into her intentions and her policies and her activities. Um, and, uh, and then I have various thoughts about what's involved in this going on. Um, I'm especially interested uh, in the way that hope engages our imaginations uh, so I spend a good chunk of chapter two um, examining the ways that um, hopeful imaginings, thinking, imagining the hoped for outcome occurring, imagining ways of bringing about and so on, the ways that those uh, exercises of imagination can influence um, the decisions that people make. Um, so, uh, so that's sort of the heart of the, the notion and kind of where I take it in the chapter that comes after that.
0: Right. But let me just ask a a very quick sort of question of clarification. But the incorporation analysis um, uh, doesn't take on the claim that what it is to hope uh, for an outcome uh, is to treat your um, uh, desire for that outcome uh, as a Reason for doing things that are explicitly aimed at bringing about the outcome. Isn't there an element that that's right? Uh, the incorporation analysis has it that they can be reasons to act in certain ways, but not necessarily act in ways that are directly aimed at bringing about the hoped-for outcome.
1: Exactly, exactly. So I, um, yeah, I spend a, a bit of time um, arguing against uh, the notion that. That hoping for an outcome is, is, is sort of a roundabout way of setting it as an end, right, or, or intending right. to bring it about. I mean, I do think that sometimes hope plays out that way, but it's important to recognize that it's not a necessary element, particularly when you think about things like people hoping for uh, miracle cures for their cancer. There might be a certain point where they think there's nothing more I could do to make that more likely, but that doesn't detract from their hope in any particular way. Um, so, uh, so yeah, so I think it's the incorporation that happens is, is broader, right? So, um, one, one example would be simply taking the, that 1% chance of some cure say, uh, or some medical benefit, uh, as giving you as licensing you to spend time thinking about it. Right. So you might think that that's the crucial difference between the hopeful participant and the despairing one is that the hopeful one um, thinks that the the situation uh, makes it legitimate for her to spend some time thinking about what the scans are going to bring back and maybe feeling uh, you know feeling good about the possibilities, whereas the despairing person thinks no, I shouldn't even think about
0: it. And would it also be the case that? Um in uh, these kinds of cases, that, that the incorporation analysis would have it, that there could be other kinds of activities that, even if the the, the hoped for outcome is acknowledged to be um, very very unlikely that it's still a reason to it could function the hope for it can function as a reason to uh engage with others in certain ways or to fend off despair in other ways
1: yeah so right so i mean i focus on the um the relationship between hope uh and fantasy or imagination um a good deal uh, maybe you know maybe that's one of those sort of in unfortunate autobiographical things that happens to philosophers. Sometimes I just have a very vivid imagination. And so that's how I think about hope. Right. (laughs) Um, But, but no, I think that I I do think there are plenty of people um, who uh, engage have very profound and important hopes who don't spend a lot of time imagining the outcomes or thinking about situations related to the outcome. Um, But instead it, what it plays out in maybe in their planning activities, right? So one thing I talk about in the book is uh, thinking about the difference between uh, the way that a hoped for outcome uh, versus an outcome upon which you're willing to rely the way those might play out in your plans, right? So if you're willing to rely on some outcome, then, you know, you're just going to build it into your plans without building any, without including any backup plans. But if you're, if you think, you know, it's legitimate to hope for it, but I shouldn't rely on it, then you might go ahead and, you know, make plans that depend upon it happening, but still uh, think you need to have some backup plans in place.
0: Right. And th- this is um, this is a good, I guess, uh, segue then into one of the other, uh, I thought, really fascinating uh, features of your analysis, which is that um, you reject the view that hope is always a good thing or that hope is unqualifiedly um, positive. Um, or uh, that hope um, is important because of its sustaining power. Um, and particularly you talk about um, the view that hope is uh, an important element that helps sustain us through um, trying times or times of trial. Um, can you talk a little bit about, about that aspect that there's a, you know, there might there there, there might be all kinds of different valences, morally speaking, right. to hope.
1: Right. Yeah. So, um, I mean, there's sort of, I think a, Uh, a popular view of hope is that it's basically a good thing. um, uh, Except, you know, some, we recognize that sometimes it can be disappointed and that can, that can be painful or bad for a person in a way. Um, Or sometimes people can uh, pin too much on it and then, you know, be not very practical in the decisions that they make. But those tend to be kind of the only negative aspects, the sort of popular view of hope recognizes. Um, And I think that, uh, once you start attending to the ways that hope um, engages imagination, it opens up the possibility for a lot, of other, um, a lot of other ways that hope can go wrong, so to speak. So um, to think that there's ways that, uh, that hoping for an outcome can actually make a person more passive uh, if they uh, allow their imagination to kind of substitute for their agency. In a way, Um, I think that hoping uh, and the way that it engages imagination can lead you to overvalue the outcome by representing it as having more good features than you than it than you ought to legitimately grant it. Um, And I think that it can also lead you to um, neglect uh, other other projects in virtue of the way that it narrows your focus um, so those so that this is, those are some of the qualifications for the value of hope that I, I raise. Um, and then connected with that, um, I'm interested in opposing the notion that hope is a kind of distinctive form of motivation. Mm-hmm. Um, and this view uh, is also, I think, sort of part of the popular view of hope. Uh, if you look in like the self-help literature or uh, some positive psychology, there's the sense that hope is like this. Magic well, and if you tap it, it's like a new spring of energy and motivation. Uh, Cheshire Calhoun calls this the energizer bunny view of hope. Right? <laughs> it just keeps going and going, um, and uh, and it actually, I think, it has its roots uh, in maybe Aquinas' view of hope because he he thinks of hope as um, uh, a distinctive form of motivation, uh, distinctive, uh, different from desire. So desire is just being you know, attracted to some outcome and that hope is sort of a special form of motivation that kicks in when we encounter obstacles. Mm -hmm. He says it's irascible. Uh, It's got a kind of fire in it. Um, So uh, I, I think that, I mean, I think there are all sorts of interesting ways that hope can influence a motivation and make our motives more effective and more and make, make us more motivated by sort of strengthening our commitments. Um, but I don't think that it's a uh, magical well of a distinctive kind of motivational energy or something. Um, and so that's one, that's one view I'm interested in opposing
0: there. Right. Um, so the um, – can you just say something very quickly? Um, uh, the, the, one of the things that comes in, in, in through the book at various interesting uh, junctures is um, – uh, the sort of question of whether this incorporation view, um, you know, where it stands in relation to um, Kant and Hume in particular. Mm, yeah. Um, could you, can you talk a little bit, I mean, to the philosophers who are listening, uh, you know, uh, who are, uh, you know, hear a lot of desire talk as intrinsically Humean. Yeah. yeah um, good, good. Can, you, can you talk to us a little bit about, um, uh, w- w- whether this is uh, a straightforwardly Kantian view or is there a human element in it? Mm-hmm. Good. So
1: there's a sense in which um, it's a very Kantian view. Um, and uh, that the sense is in, in that uh, I, I end up invoking um, the notion that there's two kinds of motivational representations that humans that we have available to us and, um, so one is, uh, I, I end up calling it attraction, but it wouldn't be a mistake to call it a desire in a human sense because the idea is that it's a motivational representation that, um, doesn't, uh, is it, isn't governed by any kind of norms of rationality except maybe, you know, norms of consistency. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, um, so when i I glossed over this because it's sort of getting into the the nitty gritty technical stuff I mentioned but um in chapter uh two, what I do is I distinguish between um two different kinds of theories of motivation so one would be a monist one um and within monist theories there's uh purely um Non-rational theories and purely rational theories. So a a non-rational theory would be David Hume's view or um, John Locke has a view like this too, which is that we're motivated by what they call desires, what I end up calling, just to be clear, attractions, which are... um, motives that don't have any rational content. They don't represent things as reasons, and they're not themselves governed by reasons. Um, and then a purely rational Monist view would be one like Spinoza has a view like this, um, Scanlon has a view like this. It's becoming an increasingly popular kind of view, uh, which is that uh, when we are motivated, what what's motivating us is um, a representation of certain considerations as justifying reasons. Um, the Kantian view... Uh, says we have both kinds of representation available to us uh, that we can be motivated by just an attraction, uh, and when we're motivated directly by an attraction, what we're doing is uh, it's not intentional action. It's you know it's it's reaction or behavior. It's the kind of motivation we have in common with non-rational animals, um, but that we can also, and in fact, most of our most human behavior probably uh, is intentional action that takes up. Uh, various considerations and treats them as reasons. Um, and so we act on, you know, as Kant says, our motives are maxims. They are representations of uh, the situation is providing us with reasons to act in certain ways. Um, and so uh, I, um, I reference the sort of incorporation aspect of my view of hope, uh, which involves taking our, what at the time I said, taking our desires and treating them as reasons. So getting into the more technical formulation, uh, my view is that, that what the hopeful person does is treat her attraction to the hoped for outcome as a reason for engaging in certain activities or exercising her imagination in various ways and that that is essentially adopting a maxim. Um, so the, the view relies upon a dualist theory of motivation where we have both these non-rational and rational motives available
0: to us. Right, right. That's, that's, that's very helpful. Um, uh, so let me then ask sort of, uh, with that, that with, with that helpful, uh, clarification in mind, um, the chapter on uh, secular faith yeah so um, part of the uh, one of the, I take it one of the benefits of the incorporation analysis is that it opens up um, thoughts about um, the relation between sort of uh, various kinds of uh, of hoping phenomena and um, what I guess in the popular uh, you know in the vernacular are sort of closely related phenomena that are um, typically characterized under the umbrella of, uh, of faith. Um, so can you tell us a little bit about the connection that you see there?
1: Yeah. So, I mean, the notion that hope and faith are closely related is uh, a, an old one, of course. Um, right. They're both supposed to be spiritual virtues. Um, in some ways, they're kind of the same thing. I take it on the, on the sort of Thomistic view, right, that uh, uh, f- faith is a kind of reliance on God's knowledge and hope is a kind of reliance on God's goodness. Um, mm-hmm. I, I do think uh, hope and faith are I- importantly connected, but uh, as, as it should be clear from things I've said so far, I don't think that hope is necessarily a virtue. Uh, I have a uh, conception of hope as a much uh, broader thing. Um, so uh, what I end up being able to say uh, in, in chapter four is that uh Faith is essentially a variant of hope where what what moves what moves it at it transforms an attitude from hope into faith is um, our a, a sort of limited ability to conceptualize the hoped for outcome. Right. So it, there are certain outcomes that we can attach our hopes to that outstrip our conceptual resources. So an obvious example would be, say, salvation. Right you know, presumably we can't really conceptualize what salvation would be, what it would be to be uh, saved in that way. Um, And uh, that when, uh, when we pin our hopes on these kinds of inconceivable outcomes, um, or I say in the book, unimaginable outcomes, uh, then that's when we should consider hope as becoming a kind of faith. And the reason is that, that when we pin our hopes in that kind of outcome, Um, the, the hope becomes immune to disappointment in various ways. There's nothing you can encounter in the world that you're, you're going to be forced to recognize as showing your hope to have, to have failed, right? Mm -hmm. Because if you can't conceive of the outcome, then nothing that you can conceptualize is guaranteed to count as the failure of that, um. So, but one of the important names in that chapter is also to argue that there's nothing essentially religious about this kind of faith that there's a secular version of it available to us that we can um, hope for uh, outcomes that uh, that we can't quite conceive that we can't quite imagine without thereby committing to um, anything supernatural
0: and I take it that um that it's important. Just to go back to one of the the, the earlier uh, um, uh, dimensions of the view, that it's important on the incorporation analysis that the kind of reasoning or the kinds of reasons, the kind of practical reasons that hope provides the hoper, um, aren't reasons to bring about the hoped for outcome, right? Because it would seem that, um, yeah, uh, a a kind of uh, faith as a kind of hope for an inconceivable. Uh, to us as yet outcome, uh, would would be sort of um, uh, incoherent on a view that said, well, hope is about incorporating yeah. as reasons. Right. Uh, and you're supposed to have reasons for bringing about an outcome that you can't conceive.
1: Yeah, yeah. And, and in fact, I, I briefly invoke the possibility of sort of unimaginable hope as a reason to doubt that it uh, that hope involves setting the hope for outcome as an end in any significant way uh, early in the book. And then I come back to that concept and develop it more fully in chapter four. Right.
0: Right. Right. So let me just ask a, a, another quick question. And, and, and this is, you know, just asking you about, about something that's not addressed in the book directly. Mm-hmm. Um, do you see a, 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 what what's the difference between hoping and more sort of delusional kinds of states that look like hoping states, mm-hmm. um, sort of delusional kinds of wishful thinking or rationalization of a delusional or, 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 or self-deceiving mm-hmm. kind.
1: Well, I do um, think that hope can be delusional. I mean, there's nothing right. about hope that I, – I mean, I think typically when we think about something like hope that's delusional, we're thinking of um, hoping for something – either that's, you know, we should recognize is impossible or nearly impossible. Um, Maybe, maybe even hoping for something. And while thinking that it's much more likely than we have reason to think it is, right? Those I think are typical notions of delusional hope or uh, something like that. Um, And there's nothing about hope that rules that out at all. Um, It's just that uh, those aren't the only ways that hope can go wrong, that's, that's right. what's important to me because it in that in you know when it originally inspired uh my my th- thinking about hope w- was this stuff in the medical setting where the real the the only kinds of worries that people ra- seem to raise about hope were that it that hope might involve assigning too high a probability to the hoped for outcome and that that was false hope um and i want to say well sure that that's that's a risk but you can have a hope that's perfectly rational in some purely um epistemic sense right that's responsive to the evidence about probabilities and it could still go wrong in a lot of important ways
0: right right well that that again is helpful so thanks for that um so let me let me then ask about so sort of the where where the book comes to a close because um uh, in, even in our discussion here, you know, we've been talking about the target of hope, that what the thing, you know, that which is hoped for as, um, we've been talking about it as, as an outcome. Um, and so, uh, we've been talking about hopes as, um, you know, recognizing desires, giving you reasons with respect to a, uh, an attractive outcome. Um, but as you recognize, uh, and discuss at the close of the book, um, you know, there's this other side of hope where it's, um, uh you know it's not hope for but hope in um as might be one way to put it uh that we we also have as our targets for hope um other people uh rather than just impersonal outcomes yeah. uh can you tell us a little bit about that dimension of of the incorporation view
1: yeah yeah so i mean in a lot of ways the last chapter of the book where i talk about this phenomenon you're talking about the um which i call normative hope in the okay. last chapter um in a lot of ways it it actually stands free of the rest of the book um I mean, indeed, I have a version of that chapter that doesn't rely on the incorporation conception at all. Um, mm-hmm. But I do think the bringing the incorporation conception into that chapter helps shed a little more light on what's going on in the phenomenon. But, um, but more broadly speaking, um, I, I'm interested there in thinking about, as you say, the ways that we pin hopes in people, and in particular, thinking of this as a as a distinctive mode of interpersonal relations. So. Um, so the context is that there's this fairly well-developed literature in moral philosophy and the literature on responsibility uh, that focuses on an idea that um, Bishop Butler wrote about, but that uh, Strawson, Peter Strawson, maybe is the real the real godfather of this literature. Um, <laughs> he identified uh, a set of emotions or uh, what he called reactive attitudes as ways of holding people responsible ways of treating people as free and responsible agents. So he, he talks in particular about um, resentment and indignation and guilt, but he names a whole lot of other emotional responses. And the idea that's grown out of this suggestion is that, um, that what it is to hold a person responsible is to be disposed to respond with these kinds of emotions. Um, And so in the book, I'm exploring the idea that there's a a distinct but related way of relating to people that is similarly a way of relating to them as creatures of reason, you might say, Um, but that isn't exactly the same as holding them responsible or making demands of them, Uh, but that is instead a way of sort of aspiring on their behalf. Um, And that I call this normative hope. And the idea here is that the, the emotions that are involved in normative hope, rather than being emotions like resentment and indignation and guilt, um, are, uh, centrally, uh, disappointment. So if you think here about the difference between someone doing you wrong and you respond with, on the one hand, resentment, or on the other hand, instead of getting angry, you feel really let down by them. Um, And uh, my claim is that in the first hand, what we're doing is holding them responsible in this somewhat technical sense of making a demand of them. Um, And in the second case, what we're doing is um, pinning normative hope in them and that that is an an important uh, way of relating to people as people uh, that we haven't given adequate philosophical attention to yet. And the other emotion that I associate with normative hope is um, is gratitude. So there's been some tendency in the literature to think of gratitude as an emotional response, marking someone going above and beyond what's demanded of them. Um, but I have various arguments for thinking that that's, that actually doesn't capture the phenomenon. And I think that gratitude in, instead is an expression of having pinned hope in somebody.
0: Right um can we hope can we hope in this way in somebody if we um so this is a, a sort of unsolicited bit of autobiography on my own part uh, uh i know people who um root for villains in movies yeah uh, and so um who often will say things like um you know i hope the well some version of i hope the bad guys win this time yeah um, can you hope for somebody villi- villainous to prevail in this way
1: Sure. Yeah. I mean, of course, you've also got the problem there of fictional emotions, right?
0: Oh, right, right, sure, right. <laughs> which,
1: uh, which I think is a really interesting subject. Um,
0: uh,
1: but I suspect that the, you know, the solution to why that's puzzling has less to do with hope and more to do with fictional emotions more generally. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs>
0: well um th- this has been very uh very helpful uh adrian and you have been really uh generous with your time so let me um uh, uh ask uh, what I usually ask is as the final question um now that you've written this great book uh that I encourage everybody to go out and read uh, and study carefully um <laughs> What's on the horizon? What are you going to do next?
1: Yeah. So, uh, well, I've got a lot of projects, um, but sort of the central one is uh, actually comes right comes right out of the chapter on normative hope. Um, I uh, the the chapter is in some ways uh, I I really like the chapter, uh, but I think uh, there's a lot of work left to be done on the subject, um, that really what I've done there is kind of sketch a program. Um, so I, I am actually, uh, planning to work on a collection of essays, uh, on positive interpersonal emotions. There's been a lot of philosophical attention to negative ones like resentment and indignation and guilt and now contempt and shame. And, and I, I mean, I, I love this literature too. And I think it's really important and really useful and really fascinating. Um, But I, but I do think that there is this important fact about us, which is that we also relate to each other interpersonally through these, um, more positive emotions though. I mean, as, as you've seen with my, uh, my account of hope, I don't think of these positive emotions as sort of always and intrinsically positive. Um, but they definitely have a more positive valence or, uh, affective presence. Um, and so I'm thinking, yeah, so I'm planning to write a series of essays, uh, probably one on gratitude, a couple on love. Um, I'm thinking also about pride, less, there is, there has been some good philosophical attention to uh, pride in oneself, but I'm really interested in being proud of another person for, for what they've accomplished and what, what's involved in that and what it means for a relationship. Um, So those are some of the essays. I'm not, I'm not sure what the rest will be.
0: And admiration, I guess, would be another yeah, one, right? That's right? Yeah, that's right. That's right. A, that's a complex set of attitudes, admiration.
1: That's right, yeah. Um,
0: which I guess also can very obviously go wrong. <laughs>
1: it's true. It's yeah, very obviously. Yeah. Uh, no, I was thinking about there's a, there's a feeling that goes with being, uh, with receiving praise, um, which is something like pride, but not quite the same thing. Um, and I'm kind of interested in that. Uh,
0: yeah. Well, that sounds uh, really, really interesting, and I look forward to uh, uh, to, to, to seeing some of your work o- on that. I'll I'll, I'll, I'll I'll keep an eye out for it. Um, but for now, I just wanted to thank you uh, so much, Adrian, for uh, for joining us on New Books in Philosophy to talk about your book, How We Hope: A Moral Psychology.
1: Well, thank you so much. It was a pleasure talking with you. Take care now. Bye bye.
0: You've been listening to my interview with Professor Adrian Martin. We were talking about her new book. We Hope, A Moral Psychology, which is recently published by Princeton University Press. I'm Robert Talese, your host. This is New Books in Philosophy, and thank you for listening.